0: So we come to the end of the readings from Ted Hughes' poetry that I've been making over the last few months, uh, tonight, with readings from his 1998 book called Birthday Letters, which uh, finally give readers and the world and whoever else cares about it his, uh, Ted Hughes' thoughts or reflections or whatever you want to call it. Um, more than 30 years later about his relationship with Sylvia Plath. And as you listen to the handful of poems that I read tonight, um, I think that you'll agree, if you've listened to the other episodes on Hughes, that um, after the huge achievement of the, the poems that he wrote in the 70s and early 80s, and after the sort of lull that happened where he didn't do much of anything of note until the mid 90s and then this book you'll see that it is uh, an immensely different voice than the one that uh, he was writing in the 70s and certainly than the one that he started with uh, back in the late 50s and you can see that it is a way of uh, a kind of turning for him of finding a new way to speak but in another sense, you can see that this voice that he has conjured up to talk about his relationship with Sylvia Plath, this sort of easy, prosaic, and sort of maybe overlong way of speaking, it does feel at times, the poems do feel like letters or diary entries. And they are, as far as I can tell, much longer than any other poems that he that he wrote. There are more two or three page poems in birthday letters than anywhere else, I think. Uh, The other conclusion you can come to is that uh, this voice would have been a one-off anyway, even if Hughes hadn't died shortly after the book was published, because it's hard to imagine what other subject he could have turned this voice to, other than the very personal one that, uh, that finally dealt with Sylvia Plath uh, in poetry now what we have here just read a few things beforehand and the first is that on January 17th 1998 a Saturday uh, the London Times on the front page above the fold uh, just underneath the uh, title the London Times uh, was a, a headline which said revealed the most tragic literary love story of our time. And there followed an article and I think a few uh, excerpts uh, of the poems. Um, Hughes sort of kept this book a secret and his publishers were able to, or I should say beforehand, Hughes kept the poems that he wrote in this book a secret for at least a decade and in some cases more than that. Uh, Seamus Heaney wrote him a letter soon after the book was published or I think just before it was published and Heaney got an advanced copy Um, and Heaney talks about his surprise at what Hughes was able to do and when you think of how close Heaney and Hughes were it says something that uh, Hughes didn't even tell Heaney that he was working on these poems. Uh, It became the uh, The fastest-selling book of poetry in the history of the English language, even though, as I said, um, and this is according to Jonathan Bates' biography, it says, the critical consensus which emerged over the following weeks and months after the book was released, I believe in February of 1998, was that the poems were of deep sincerity and unique biographical value. But a very variable literary quality, mixing exquisite imagery and memorable phrases with pedestrian and prosaic passages. But Jonathan Bates says, "But nothing could stop the sales. And Hughes wrote a letter to uh, another poet named Kathleen Rain, and. A uh, Hughes's daughter read from this letter after her father died to accept the Whitbread uh, Award, the Whitbread Prize in 1999 for birthday letters. And it's worth hearing what Hughes has to say here. He says, I think those letters, those birthday letters, do release the story that everything I have written since the early 1960s has been evading. It was in a kind of desperation that I finally did publish them. I had always thought them unpublishably raw and unguarded, simply too vulnerable. But then I just could not endure being blocked any longer. How strange that we have to make public declarations of our secrets. But we do. If only I had done the equivalent thirty years ago, I might have had a more fruitful career. Certainly, a freer psychological life. Even now, the sensation of inner liberation, a huge, sudden possibility of new inner experience. And he says much the same thing to a, in a letter to his son. Let me find it here. In a wonderful letter to his son. Nicholas Hughes I want to get the date right on the letter it's a long letter Um, on February 20th 1998 this is what he writes to his son um, who was asleep in the apartment when Sylvia Plath killed herself and who uh, lived with his own version of Hughes's notoriety ever after Um, Ted Hughes writes to his son the best I could do through all those following years, to deal with that giant psychological logjam of your mother and me, was right, as if to her, quite privately, simple little attempts to communicate with her about our time together. They were what accumulated over the years to this birthday letters. Most of them I never dreamed of publishing. They exposed too much, I always thought. But they were inadequate to break up the logjam. Just writing them was inadequate to break up the logjam. That thickening, thickening glass window between me and that real self of mine, which was trapped in the unmanageable experience of what had happened with her and me. And so, because I could never break up the logjam, except for those three or four years in Ireland after, never open the giant plate-glass door of it, that real self of mine could never get on with its life, could never join me and help me get on with my life. And a few paragraphs later, he adds, So I did it, and now I'm getting the surprise of my life. What I've been hiding all my life from myself and everybody else is not terrible at all, though you didn't want to read it. And the effect on me, Nicky, The sense of gigantic upheaval transformation in my mind is quite bewildering. It's as though I have completely new, different brains. I can think thoughts I never could think. I have a freedom of imagination I have not felt since 1962. Just to have got rid of all that. Well, let's hope it wasn't all just a bit too late. And at least for me, uh, I would say that Hughes is obviously allowed to think whatever he wants about this book, uh, Birthday Letters. But for me, it's very interesting. It says something wonderful and uh, difficult, uh, maybe even tragic if you're in that frame of mind, about creativity. I think that even uh, a scholar who was very close to Hughes Keith Sagar, I believe his name is, I believe even he would admit that the strongest poetry Hughes wrote, the greatest period of creativity that he had, was in the the major collections in the 1970s and in bits and pieces of the smaller press, more strange collections from the 1970s and early 80s. And it wasn't... uh, So that when you get to the 80s and he sort of isn't doing much at all, um, that is when he also gets the he becomes poet laureate of, uh, of the united kingdom and it says something there that awards like uh, the poet laureateship these awards and these recognitions always come at the wrong time they always come too late they always come after the big things have been achieved they're almost a recognition of what someone missed the first time around since he didn't Hughes didn't really write all that much of note while he was poet laureate, except for birthday letters. And it reminds me of something in the life of Beethoven, where up until I think about 1810 or so, he had some of the most miraculous creative years of any artist of any kind, not just musician. But when, around 1810 or so, he achieved what few artists ever do, which is um, a financial independence, um, he can't quite figure out what to do with it, or whatever it was that he had escapes him. And this just seems to be how things go, and it's odd for me to, to think, not odd, it just makes more and more sense these days that Hughes, at the end of his life, of course he would, he would say um, that birthday letters freed him up somehow and that everything going forward would be something new. And of course we'll never know since he died shortly after. But it seems significant somehow that um, he's talking about a freer, Psychological life; he's talking about all of these things that uh, he's talking about the ease of recognition and the ease that he has achieved in the uh, when the 80s come around of domestic life of settling down, um, sort of not necessarily rest and relaxation, but a greater focus and a greater peace in his life. And we assume, and in Ted Hughes' final years, he wanted to assume as well, that that would translate into uh, better and greater poetry, when it seems, in fact, that it was the time of greatest upheaval and the time of greatest stress and the time of greatest um, doubt and uncertainty. That is the time, uh, the time where he was most domestically in turmoil um, and all the rest of it. Um, that is when he seems to have written his greatest poetry. But in any case, uh, as with many of his other books, you can say what you'd like about the whole collection, but uh, one, two, three, four, five, these five poems, I think, out of about 90 pages of poetry, I think hit the mark wonderfully well. The first poem about Plath is actually about, uh, that I'm going to read, is about their, uh, their wedding day, and this is called A Pink Wool Knitted Dress, and it says, In your pink wool knitted dress, before anything had smudged anything, you stood at the altar. Bloomsday. Rain so that a just-bought umbrella was the only furnishing about me, newer than three years in My tie, sole drab, veteran RAF black, was the used-up symbol of a tie. My cord jacket, thrice-dyed black, exhausted, just hanging on to itself. I was a post-war utility son-in-law, not quite the frog prince. Maybe the swineherd stealing this daughter's pedigree dreams from under her watch-towered searchlit future. No ceremony could conscript me out of my uniform. I wore my whole wardrobe, except for the odd, spare, identical item. My wedding, like nature wanted to hide. However, if we were going to be married, it had better be Westminster Abbey. Why not? The dean told us why not. That is how I learned I had a parish church. St. George of the Chimney Sweeps. So we squeezed into marriage finally. Your mother, brave even in this U.S. foreign affairs gamble, acted all bridesmaids and all guests. Even magnanimity represented my family, who had heard nothing about it. I had invited only their ancestors. I had not even confided my theft of you to a closest friend. For best man, my squire to hold the meanwhile rings, we requisitioned the sexton. Twist of the outrage, he was picking children into a bus, taking them to the zoo. In that downpour, all the prison animals had to be patient while we married. You were transfigured, so slender and new and naked, a nodding spray of wet lilac. You shook, you sobbed with joy, you were ocean depth brimming with God. You said you saw the heavens open and show riches, ready to drop upon us. Levitated beside you I stood subjected to a strange tense, the spellbound future in that echo gaunt weekday chancel i see you wrestling to contain your flames in your pink wool knitted dress and in your eye pupils great cut jewels jostling their tear flames truly like big jewels shaken in a dice cup and held up to me And the pair, after their marriage, went on to Spain. And here are two poems about that honeymoon in Spain. The first is called, You Hated Spain. You hated Spain. Spain frightened you. Spain, where I felt at home. The blood-raw light. The oiled anchovy faces. The... African black edges to everything. Frightened you. Your schooling had somehow neglected Spain. The wrought iron grill. Death and the Arab drum. You did not know the language. Your soul was empty of the signs. And the welding light made your blood shrivel. Bosch held out a spidery hand and you took it. Timidly a Bobby Sox American. You saw right down to the Goya funeral grin and recognized it and recoiled as your poems winced into chill, as your panic clutched back towards college America. So we sat as tourists at the bullfight, watching bewildered bulls awkwardly butchered, seeing the gray-faced matador at the barrier just below us, straightening his bent sword and vomiting with fear. And the horn that hid itself inside the blowfly belly of the toppled Picador punctured what was waiting for you. Spain was the land of your dreams, the dust-red cadaver you dared not wake with, the puckering amputations no literature course had glamorized. The juju land behind your African lips. Spain was what you tried to wake up from and could not. I see you in moonlight, walking the empty wharf at Alicante, like a soul waiting for the ferry, a new soul still not understanding, thinking it is still your honeymoon and the happy world with your whole life waiting happy and all your poems still to be found and this next one is called uh, Drawing Drawing calmed you your poker infernal pen was like a branding iron objects suffered into their new presence tortured into final position as you drew i felt released calm time opened when you drew the market at Benidorm. i sat near you scribbling something hours burned away the stall keepers kept coming to see you had them properly we sat on those steps in our rope soles and were happy our tourist novelty had worn off We knew our own ways through the town's runs. We were familiar foreign objects. When he'd sold his bananas, the banana seller gave us a solo violin performance on his banana stalk. Everybody crowded to praise your drawing. You drew doggedly on, arresting details, till you had the whole scene imprisoned. Here it is. You rescued forever our otherwise lost morning. Your patience, your lip-gnawing scowl, got the portrait of the marketplace that still slept in the Middle Ages. Just before it woke and disappeared, under the screams of a million summer migrants and the cliff of dazzling hotels, as your hand went under Heptonstall to be held by endless darkness. That is the... Uh, the family cemetery where she is uh, buried. While my pen travels on only 200 miles from your hand, holding this memory of your red, white-spotted bandana, your shorts, your short-sleeved jumper, one of the 30 I lugged around Europe, and your long brown legs propping your pad, and the contemplative calm I drank from your concentrated quiet. In this contemplative calm, now I drink from your stillness that neither of us can disturb or escape. And in this next one, they are back in England. This is called The Rabbit Catcher. It was May. How had it started? What had bared our edges? What quirky twist of the moon's blade had set us, so early in the day, bleeding each other? What had I done? I had somehow misunderstood. Inaccessible in your dybbuk fury, babies hurled into the car, you drove. We surely had been intending a day's outing, somewhere on the coast. An exploration. So you started driving. What I remember is thinking, she'll do something crazy. And I ripped the door open and jumped in beside you. So we drove west, west. Cornish lanes, I remember, a simmering truce as you stared in your iron face into some remote thunderscape of some unworldly war. I simply trod accompaniment, carried babies, waited for you to come back to nature we tried to find the coast you raged against our English private greed of fencing off all coastal approaches, hiding the sea from roads, from all inland you despised England's grubby edges when you got there that day belonged to the Furies I searched the map to penetrate the farms and private kingdoms finally, a getaway it was a fresh day, full May, somewhere I'd bought food. We crossed a field and came to the open, blue push of sea wind. A gorse cliff, brambly, oak packed combs. We found an eerie hollow, just under the cliff top. It seemed perfect to me. Feeding babies, your Germanic scowl edged like a helmet. Would not translate itself I sat baffled I was a fly outside In the window pane Of my own domestic drama You refused to lie there Being indolent You hated it That flat, draughty plate Was not an ocean You had to be away And you went And I trailed after like a dog Along the cliff-top field edge Over a wind-matted oak wood And I found a snare Copper wire gleam, brown cord, human contrivance, sitting, new set. Without a word, you tore it up and threw it into the trees. I was aghast. Faithful to my country gods, I saw the sanctity of a trap line desecrated. You saw blunt fingers, blood in the cuticles, clamped around a blue mug. I saw country poverty raising a penny, filling a Sunday stew-pot. You saw baby-eyed, strangled innocents. I saw sacred, ancient custom. You saw snare after snare and went ahead, writhing them from their roots and flinging them down the wood. I saw you ripping up precarious, precious saplings of my heritage, hard-won concessions from the hangings and the transportations to live off the land. You cried murderers. You were weeping with a rage that cared nothing for rabbits. You were locked into some chamber gasping for oxygen where I could not find you or really hear you, let alone understand you. In those snares you'd caught something. Had you caught something in me nocturnal and unknown to me or was it your doomed self your tortured crying suffocating self whichever those terrible hypersensitive fingers of your verse closed rounded and felt it alive the poems like smoking entrails came soft into your hands and I suppose those are my favorite parts of these poems, is Hughes admitting that through whatever it is they went through, she was always gathering the energy for her poems. Your poems still to be found, it says in the one I just read. And here, the poems like smoking entrails came soft into your hands. Um, It's that thing that We do, Um, it's that thing that I've done this year, saying that uh, whatever 2021 has been, especially following what 2020 was, at least I got all of those Shakespeare poems written and somehow it seems to have been worth it. Um, And now we come to this, this will be the last poem I will read from Ted Hughes. I'll still spend some time with his letters, and when I put all of the podcasts of his poetry together that I've read, I'm sure I'll tack on an introduction or something, but this will be the last poem. And you can see here and make it what you will, the autobiography, the uh, the love of nature, the love of myth, and the sort of combining of all of them, and you can see it as ridiculous the pretense of this there's already pretense in assuming that people will want to read uh, 90 of your poems about uh, a relationship you once had but of course Hughes knew that people did want to read that and it became such a bestseller Um, you can think all of that or you can just be moved by um, the story of this relationship and the, the poetry and the heart and the emotion it still, still gave birth to more than 30 years afterwards and only a few months before Ted Hughes died. So appropriately enough, this last poem I'll be reading here is called Life After Death. What can I tell you that you do not know of the life after death? Your son's eyes, which had unsettled us with your Slavic, Asiatic, epicanthic fold, but would become so perfectly your eyes, became wet jewels, the hardest substance of the purest pain as I fed him in his high white chair. Great hands of grief were wringing and wringing his wet cloth of face. They wrung out his tears, but his mouth betrayed you. It accepted the spoon in my disembodied hand that reached through from the life that had survived you. Day by day his sister grew, paler with the wound she could not see or touch or feel as I dressed it each day with her blue Breton jacket. By night I lay awake in my body, the hanged man, my neck curve uprooted, and the tendon which fastened the base of my skull to my left shoulder, torn from its shoulder root and cramped into knots. I fancied the pain that could be explained If I were hanging in the spirit from a hook Under my neck muscle Dropped from life We three made a deep silence In our separate cots We were comforted by wolves Under that February moon And the moon of March The zoo had come close And in spite of the city Wolves consoled us two or three times each night for minutes on end they sang they had found where we lay and the dingoes and the brazilian maned wolves all lifted their voices together with the gray northern pack the wolves lifted us in their long voices they wound us and enmeshed us and their wailing for you, their mourning for us. They wove us into their voices. We lay in your death, in the fallen snow, under falling snow, as my body sank into the folk tale, where the wolves are singing in the forest, for two babes, who have turned in their sleep into orphans, beside the corpse of their mother. Any comments or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to human voices wake Us, the number one, at gmail.com. Links to each work used in this episode can be found in the episode description. If you enjoy Human Voices Wake Us, You can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. The music here is Duke Ellington's Arabesque Cookie.